This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I've yes. never asked you this question, but I've long been curious. Mm-hmm. What does your class sound like? It's a weird question. It, right? Because we so often don't think of sound on its own, right? We always think of it being associated with the, the, the people or places or things the noise is coming from. Yeah. Do you know what? I um, This has been such a weird year with being hybrid and having students at home and students here in like one of my favorite, like I used to really kind of love the little rumble when like students would come in and they would pull out their seats and talk to each other. And you just don't have that. Yeah. And then I'm also like trying to get my multiple things going on. And so at one point I was really sad about how quiet it was. And so I went on YouTube and they had like classroom sounds <laughs> and I played on my iPad classroom sounds for the entire day because it was like eight <laughs> hours long. Nobody questioned anything. It was the, 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 the quietness is so loud and it is, it was just, it was just making me very sad. I like noise. I like yeah students talking and you know pushing in chairs and i like oh i like having small talk and i don't even like small talk like i don't even <laughs> care about the weather but i know that's something but like oh man i i miss things yeah i got really sad and i apologize i did not mean to bring us here. <laughs> i think we're all at that point you know these days where uh, any question can <laughs> can bring us close to tears, right? Thinking yeah. of the way things were. I mean, but you you have me thinking too about like just the role of sound in learning, right? Like I think about uh, when I was like a freshman in college, I really had I was very easily distracted, and so I'd often have to go to like the 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 reading room on campus that was completely quiet, where people would come in and they'd you know if they just even barely open their bag, you know, people would all turn and look at them, give oh, them a no. mean look. Yeah. Cause you're not supposed to talk in there. And as I gotten older, like I actually really like being in places with noise, right? I like being in coffee shops. Yeah. I like being in different places. And, but, but schools are like that. I very much feel what you say. And I, it's, it's not just the, the audio component, but I used to always tell people like when I would walk into the school building, my, you know, when I was teaching high school, like it, it's kind of like, it feels like it's a movie almost like it's like just really it's just kids running around making yeah. noise. They're doing everything you'd expect them to do. And I always felt like, <laughs> so I do, I miss that too. I agree. There's an energy there, right? Right. Yeah. And so when it's missing, like you definitely feel it. Oh, which is why the creepiest places in my opinion are like elementary schools at night <laughs> when no one else is there. Oh, cause like the, the absence of yeah, the absence of, ch- of children's noises, right? And the sounds are, are kind of gone. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, you're asking me this for a reason. 
Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, it's something we don't, I don't think about that often. Right. And it's not just the sounds in our classrooms, but so maybe the sounds in our communities, right? What sounds are we used to? How do communities mm-hmm. sound different? There's so many interesting questions we can think about. Um, and I really like to isolate it and think about sounds on their own, but I don't Dude, really oh God, know. There was, what's the, um, the Miles Morales Spider-Man uh, game on PlayStation. Like there's this thing where you're, you you need to isolate sound. Uh, it's really, really cool. Um, that's a phenomenal. I really did enjoy that game quite a bit. It was the yeah the new Spider-Man video game. Yeah, and a really good uh, teaching strategy. I think I learned this from Lance Mason, who we had on when we talked about media ecology, is uh, when you isolate the media components of like TV, right? So if you're watching a political ad, uh, just listen to the sound and then just watch the video and then look at them together and see how, you know, and also just look at the text maybe of the ad. And then when you put them together, you kind of are able to deconstruct them in ways. So I don't know, but I think, you know, there's other people and researchers and educators who've thought about the ways that, that sound, for example, is a part of education, among other things. This is where you're going with this. I'm, I'm, this in. Is, I'm in for the this ride. This is where I'm going. And so to be our, our sound master for the episode, right? We'd like to welcome in DJ John Wargo. Welcome. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John Wargo. Hey. That's exactly like a DJ. I like that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm going to, yeah, that's what I'm going to give you tonight. That's, that's about as DJ I'm, as I'm going to get. I so do. we're going we're gonna to talk about sound as we continue making sound. But in the meantime, could you tell us a little bit about who is John Wargo? Sure. So, hi, I am John Wargo. I am an assistant professor of teaching curriculum and society in the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. I live in Massachusetts. What? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that's nuts. Where at? I live in, I'm in Watertown. Oh, um, oh my gosh. No way. I lived right on Galen for the longest time. I just moved. I don't know where that is, but oh, it's in my town. It is in Watertown. Yeah, it's right. It's right by the pike. So hello. Okay. Hello, neighbor. Yeah. Hello. Wow. This is so exciting. That's great. Yeah. So at BC, I co-coordinate the undergrad elementary ed program and teach a range of graduate and undergrad courses in literacy studies, social studies, education, ed tech, teacher education, and qualitative methodology. Prior to being an education professor at BC, I was a public school teacher and early childhood educator in uh, Denver, Colorado, worked in DPS, Denver Public Schools, for a number of years as a kindergarten teacher. And then I meandered my way back to the Midwest. So I'm originally from Indiana, but I went to Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, where I did my doctorate at, in curriculum instruction and teacher ed. So, t- John, can you tell me a little bit about the first days of kindergarten? Because my, my wife's an elementary teacher and I taught high school, but I do work with pre-service elementary teachers. And if there's anything I don't feel prepared to work with them on, it's the first days of kindergarten, right? It's such, uh, there's such a growth and learning curve, and I'm sure it's so exciting. What was it like for you? I mean, it is noisy. Like I'll sort of continue on trend with the, the theme of the, the evening with sound. It's very noisy, but it's noisy in the best possible way. Parents want to stay in your room all day and you're asking them to sort of nicely sort of meander their way out so their you know, young person gets familiar with the learning space. Um, but you also have a lot of screams and tears and cries for folks where school is maybe an unfamiliar place, but it's awesome. The first days of kindergarten are, are great. It's one of the few spaces where I feel like I got to sit on the carpet, crisscross applesauce, and sort of just jam out 
listening um, and, and really sort of being with students in a way that latter days of kindergarten and getting ready to first grade maybe don't provide in the same way. Um, but it's great. It is a little bit terrifying, especially in, in, you know, as a first year kindergarten teacher. That was sort of like a, whoa, whoa. But um, it's great. I miss it. I miss it a lot. So what would you tell my pre-service teachers? Because what I'm going to do is just take this clip of this podcast and have them listen to it if they ask me about uh, what, what, what was your strategy after having some experience with those first days to uh, help, help you and students and parents through it? <laughs> I mean, the practical sort of suggestion is close the door because you do have some runners who will make, they make their way ex- <laughs> right out of the classroom. So close the door. But I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned is just to sort of invite parents, families, caregivers, and all others in and sort of um, rest, relax, and get to know, you know, your classroom community in the best part, you know, in the best way. And yeah, and sort of just, just vibe. I know that that's so amorphous, but you know, those first couple of days, there's sort of no strict rules, routines, or procedures that may happen in latter grades. It's sort of just, hey, let's, let's just be in relation with one another. That's cool. And I actually think that's great advice for, for high school teachers too, right? I think, um, you know, too often we, we come in with strict rules and it's really cool to negotiate it and learn and get to know each other and figure out, you know, d- directions towards, towards having relational pedagogies with your students. I love that. Wow. So, so John, you are here for not, we wanted you here for many reasons, but you're also here because <laughs> you accomplished something. You published an article in Theory and Research and Social Education. So first, congratulations on that. Thank you. So the article is titled Sound, and you have sound in quotes there, Sound Civics, Heard Histories, A Critical Case of Young Children Mobilizing Digital Media to Write Injustice. And you also have write, like W-R-I-T-E, and then in parentheses, (laughs) R-I-G-H-T. So I have to make sure that's clear for people listening. Uh, so can you tell us about this research? Yeah. So that paper is part of a broader multi-sided study that was actually funded by an H2020 European Commission grant. Um, and that grant was entitled Makey with a capital EY to highlight sort of making in the early years. So in the broader project that was led um, by Dr. Jackie Marsh, she brought together a number of educators and early year scholars across North America, South America, Europe, and Australia. And together we came to sort of reimagine the role of making and makerspace technologies in early learning. So young children's ages two to nine digital learning. So that Sound Civics Heard Histories article zeroes in on some empirical snapshots from my contingent of that project, which was entitled Civic Making. And in it, I locate readers in Boston, Massachusetts, where I was fortunate enough to work with and learn from two first grade teachers in their classroom communities. And in the article, I think with sort of Nicole Mira and Antero Garcia's um, speculative civic literacies, but I also think with sound studies to sort of highlight how digital media production was mobilized by two young children, uh, Kevin and Gordy, to document and detail a personal issue of geocivic injustice. Ooh, shout out to Antero Garcia, who we had on episode 105, Game Media and Education. Yep. And if you haven't listened to that one, you should. What Do you mind talking a little bit about what uh, makerspace technologies are? Yeah. So, I mean, in the realm of what we may consider as like community makerspaces like Hatch in Watertown, you know, for us, it's about sort of large 3D printers or digital environment, you know, fabrication using sort of e-textiles. But for 
first graders, for first grade learners, you know, I also also think about the analog materials that we may find in early learning spaces, like pipe cleaners, markers, construction paper, but the makerspace sort of technologies that are in first grade classrooms are things like LED lights, squishy circuits, robo-making um, robots that sort of um, sort of chart initial sort of computer science skills and early coding. But in this project, we were also thinking about sort of the ar array of technologies that we brought in for young children to document their learning. So GoPro cameras, for example, tablets, other types of technologies that weren't necessarily ubiquitous in these first grade classrooms. I love that. Makerspaces are really fun. And my uh, wife is an elementary librarian and in her, she has a creation commons area and they're always coding and playing with robots and doing all kinds of stuff. And it's really cool to see young kids get into it because I, I would sit with her while our uh, nephew, who I think was four years old at the time, started doing coding with robots and he loved it. And before you knew it, he'd be teaching adults how to do it, which was really fun to see. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they are far more skilled than their teachers and, you know, peers in the sense of, you know, how to make a stop motion video that was sort of, oh, well, I'll just use YouTube to figure out how to use this app that I've never used before. So it, it's been great to sort of witness that. So t tell us more about Kevin and Gordy. What, what was, what did you learn from them and, and what was the experience like uh, for this research study? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I saw that I wanted to highlight was sort of young people's ingenuity and innovation. And this is, I think, at the heart of what Antero and Nicole are trying to advance with this idea of speculative civic literacies and that like young people are always already engaging in these sort of expansive and creative forms of meeting making that are radically reorienting the purpose of shared democratic life, even if it's the shared life of a, of a classroom space, right? Or this is what like, you know, I think about like Dewey's associate, associated living. Um, and for Kevin and Gordy, they sort of charted these speculative solutions to uh, a real problem of Kevin not hearing community in the sort of local school environs. He is displaced because of gentrification in sort of the south end of Boston. He lives in East Boston, which Aurally, right, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, sounds radically different, right, than the South Boston. You have the airport, you have sort of noise. It, it's, it's totally different. And so I think that for me, what I was able to see is that in these young children's speculative solutions, like a two-mile-long connects bridge that connects Kevin's house in East Boston to the school, that these young people were developing core civic capacities for equity, for empathy, and for, and for justice. And, and here's my plug for sound, right? Is that like sound here as a mode and method and medium helped recalibrate what types of texts or sources that these teachers and the, these classrooms thought about as like, you know, important texts to include in early social studies, right? And I think that like, you know, there's a play on the word sort of, you know, sound civics heard histories, but one of the central questions I hope the article raises is, you know, what and whose histories are heard and whose remain silenced. So that's really interesting. So, so the students were hearing things and as you taught, as it was, as you talked about uh, what they were hearing in the neighborhood that you started to realize that it was, and it was not only Gordy, right. Who didn't live nearby, but it wasn't it also the teacher who didn't live yeah, in both the neighborhood. Teachers, yeah. Both teachers were completely displaced from sort of the school community. So how did, how did that become evident? And so they were using, you were using what GoPros, and going out and recording things in the community, how did this kind of uh, this exploration go about? Come about? 
Yeah, sort of the the second supporting question, what does community sound like, really sort of helped foster this idea of, we've already, you know, as a class, we sort of toured the um, school environs and where the school's located. There's these awesome, awesome murals. Actually, murals including Frederick, Drug Frederick Douglass. <laughs> so we could go there if you want. <laughs> um, Dan read there... a book about Frederick Douglass. That's what I... <laughs> I'm but not there's... saying anything. <laughs> there's these awesome murals where, you know, questions about sort of historicity were present, right? In terms of who are these sort of historical figures, but also whose communities are present on these murals? What does this tell us about place and space? And we sort of went back and sort of found a number of picture books that leveraged like onomatopoeia as a way to locate the physical environment of space, right? So you hear the beep, beep, beep of a car horn or the tat, tat, tat of, you know, uh, uh, I don't even know, like that, not a bulldozer. What's the thing that like cuts up cement? Cement cutter, no. A cement, cement cutter, jackhammer? Yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> a jackhammer, yes, 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 a jackhammer, right? But like Rachel Isadora's book, Listen to the City. So we became fascinated by, well, what if we redid the walk together? And instead of looking and sort of prioritizing the visual as a, as a space to understand to the city, like what, what happens if we like really just listen? And so we went on a listening walk and we sort of outfitted a sub, you know, group of students and the teachers with these cameras. And then we came back. And one of the things that we did, you know, with the teachers was sort of look at the data ongoing of like, what are the conversations young people are having about sort of their walk in the community? And we became fascinated with Kevin and Gordy because they try to do this back to back thing of like, oh, I'm going to walk like you and you're going to walk like me and you're going to see what I see and hear what I hear. But it leads to a conversation of like, whoa, 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 like community here, this is your home. Like this neighborhood, you're a, a walker, if you will, and you walk home. But I, I take the bus with my sister and I live, you know, a half hour away. And this doesn't sound like my home. This isn't my community. Um, and you sort of see in the article sort of, you know, Gordy try to reframe. No, 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 no. He's not asking that. He's asking like, what does community sound like here at the Williams School? But Kevin's pretty adamant about like, no, like this isn't my home. This isn't my community. And it was sort of that, that sort of led us to, you know, cultivating well, like what, how do we sort of leverage these two young people and their possible solutions to sort of, you know, keep the inquiry going. That, those discussions are fascinating, right? And they, they beg all kinds of further questions about what is community, right? And uh, yeah, do we have communities in classrooms and schools and what types of communities are they? And, and so it's interesting to hear a young, a young child, you know, think about and, and think of community very much about where they live, right? And, and center it in those notions. So, so yeah, what, what, else, what else did you learn from, from them and throughout the study? Yeah, I mean, I think that like at the crux of the article is about sort of recognizing what many would qualify as like documenting young children's play as political participation, right? And this isn't, this isn't new, right? Like I think that there are amazing folks out there like Katie Payne, Katie Swalwell, Noreen Rodriguez, Jen Halver, Stephanie Serrier, Anna Faulkner, Haney Yoon, right? Like a number of folks that are also doing this work in early learning and that follow this line of tracing young children's participation as powerful civic action. And, and for me, right, seeing how what started as this sonic solution for Kevin and Gordy that transformed into a silent petition that they were sort of collaborative and organizing. This led to sort of a, a speculative counter story that highlighted the power of digital media and of making and of sound 
as a resource for students to design more just social futures for themselves, right? And again, like I think sound creates this relational conduit between, you know, person to person, between person and place, but it also, you know, like amplified their herd environs in a way that sort of made audible a personal problem. So what were some of their, um, some of their solutions? or some of the things that they came up with? So the first one, I mean, the first one was this connects bridge, right? That um, it was a stop motion video where there's a small sort of Fortnite character on Giddy Up, sort of walking from East Boston to the Williams School. And the Fortnite character, this is, you know, really important. The Fortnite character was chosen because it was the only sort of pop, pop culture icon or toy that was black that Kevin had access to. So he wanted to sort of center that like, this is who I am. I am on Giddy Up. And Gordy was this blue stick bot guy that was sort of helping Kevin come across. And when they showed it to the class, right, right before we left, they showed it on their sort of smart board as a stop motion video. And of course it had an awesome soundtrack that they recorded of like footsteps walking across. You heard the planes of Logan overhead, but their classmates were like, no, 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 no. This isn't real. Like, this is like not a solution. Like this isn't like, this isn't remedying the problem. And so the kids went back and with the help of their teachers, you know, the, the broader inquiry started with sort of a community organizing co group coming in and actually like locating the steps of solving a community problem through um, action and political organization. And the things that the kids got really sort of drawn to was like, oh, they created this petition. They got loud through a petition. People's voices were heard through a petition. And so they went back and drew in on a white piece of computer paper, a bunch of Roblox figures that sort of indicated other peers and classmates in the class. And then students signed their names on top of the Roblox figure. And this sort of served as a petition. What's interesting about this though, is that it also simultaneously was like the backdrop of another stop motion video. But what was curious about this was like in this stop motion video, they were not featured. So the same stick bot that Gordy, you know, was in the first video and the Fortnite character on Giddy Up, that they weren't included. And so this was sort of, you know, in leaving this part of the inquiry, you know, this is a part where I was sort of scratching my head saying like, this is super interesting that like you're presenting a solution that is collaborative-ish in nature, where your peers are signing a petition, everyone's voice feels heard in some ways, but you're not there, right? So the, the dimensions of you isolating a problem of like gentrification, for example, right? Of who gets to live near this school, um, that isn't sort of solved in the same way. One, one thing I really love about this idea of, of you know, using, you know, makerspace technologies to play in, encouraging students to not only hear their communities, but also potentially, you know, with GoPro, uh, GoPros and other things to see their communities is I think there's a real uh, potential um, to not jump right to the solutions, right? I think a lot of school were ready to like say, hey, let's, but what are the solutions to problems in our communities? But this seems to, to allow for more of a process for it to unfold and for students to explore and think about things they hadn't think about, allow conversations to come up that they hadn't anticipated, uh, and for teachers to facilitate that process along the way. Um, is that, I mean, is that, is that kind of what you think that the way that that civics and makerspace can work together because they're not put together nearly enough, in my opinion, right? Like often civics is seen as a different area than STEM and makerspace technologies and all of that. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, the, the same sort of sequence of design, right, of ideation 
of prototype of sort of presenting a solution and iterating on that design. Like these are things that, you know, young people across the inquiry were really invested in and doing. And one of the things that I love, first, I just want to shout out sort of Tercy for sort of allowing long articles to exist. <laughs> I think that that's awesome. But also like in, in the article, I was able to like, you know, include the interview protocol the, of the design interview protocol where, you know, you got to sort of see the types of questions the researcher, you know, me and my research team were able to sit down and ask students. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, for the teachers, they were like, I wish I had that time. I wish I had time to pull kids out in the, you know, classroom, uh, you know, in the hallway and sort of have them sort of talk about their prototype and initial design for 20 minutes a pop. But like, I have 29 other kids that I have to sort of, you know, be with and work with and, you know, and teach. And so I think that, you know, there, there was sort of, uh, maybe an unrealistic expectation of sort of, you know, how, how invested in the sort of prototype and ideation phase can one teacher get with 30 students? So this is kind of fascinating. And I do feel a little bit out of my element because I, I have not used a makerspace with students or in, in with myself. I guess I do a podcast, but I, I don't think I am. Um, <laughs> If I was a teacher who wanted to do something like this, with the exception of having a team who can help, you know, facilitate with me, what are what's some advice that you have for for educators? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's that's a great question and one that like I think that you know, and starting it is important to underscore that there was a large group of us. You know, I was there, four graduate students were there, and we came with bins and boxes full of material goods, right, that were otherwise non sort of familiar technologies in the space. But in, in planning the inquiry, prior to all the stuff coming in, is that like we developed a shared language about what making was. And, and that I think is really important in that for, for the, these teachers, both of these teachers are, you know, teach in a bilingual program, for them making was language, right, making was sort of this you know, bilingualism that they were fostering in their Spanish and English classes. We also talked about how for many of the young people making was sort of done through sport or through, you know, other sort of practices that may not necessarily be initial ones that we think about with sort of the high tech stuff. And that like making was just a cultural process, you know, process and practice of, of, you know, thinking with materials. But I think that one of the things that the article highlights is that, you know, in the collaborative sheet, like in the, in the inquiry, you're able to sort of see how the supporting questions were scaffolded to sort of um, get at this larger performance assessment of like making a difference using sort of this idea of digital media or digital technologies or of maker, maker technologies. And I think that like the cover sheet's important for me because I think that I want readers and prospective elementary educators at that to see how in-service educators were actually thinking about the inquiry. And this is interesting because when I brought in the initial cover sheet to my you know, methods class, many of my teachers were sort of critiquing the logic of the inquiry. So they read, they read sort of Swanley and Grant a little bit too close. <laughs> and they were like, well, you know, the, the framing of the questions aren't necessarily, you know, following a logic that they outline as rigorous or substantive in the same way that I want to sort of do in my classroom. But I think for, for me, right, I, I became really protective in the sense of like, yeah, but 
it was designed through place-based inquiry. Place, the environment, was a technology that the teachers thought about utilizing. And this, I think, came from like sustained sort of reading from progressive early childhood educators, like Lucy Sprague Mitchell, for exam example. Like I think about her book, Young Geographers, and the way that she highlights the place of young children navigating a space. It's very sort of, you know, Desertoian, that's like, that predates sort of Deserto. Um, but I also think about like Vasileros out of the classroom and into the world. These are progressive early childhood educators that think about place as curriculum. And so I think that that's what I would tell, you know, educators first is go in your back backyard, you know, walk the city, leverage the resources of, you know, the, the school community. But I hope like one of the other sort of things I hope that readers get out of the article in terms of practical implications is that I hope that the, the snapshots and the figures of young children's making, you know, the pictures and the extended transcripts, I help th those like, you know, rouse and reframe some of the central questions guiding early social studies practice and research, right? Like I think that one of the things I've been thinking a lot lately is that like, how can we understand Kevin and Gordy's practice and processes with digital media as forms of activism? You know, like what actions and doings and sounds of young children count as civic participation, right? And I think that, you know, there's, there's a breadth of scholarship and I think many educators would sort of move beyond the, oh, it's not just about preparing young children for citizenship, but recognize them as young citizens already. Yeah, 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 I get that, I'm there. But, but how do we sort of as educators not occlude those moments where they show themselves as civic actors? What was the experience like for Kevin and Gordy at the end of this? Yeah, so Kevin and Gordy, I mean, one of the things that the article, you know, the article starts with sort of the, um, the two lead teachers not necessarily being thrilled with how the inquiry is coming to a call, you know, is culminating. For them, it did become sort of this, you know, I don't necessarily know what students are getting out of this other than sort of just like playing with digital technologies. And like, we really want to use the extended day to sort of, you know, do an extra round of guided reading. And this I thought was really interesting because it sort of charts a central tension around sort of the initial impetus for the project was, you know, at their school, they, you know, qualified the social studies instruction as like bins and boxes in the sense that units would come in, they would do a quick little social studies four week unit, and then they, they would send the Rubbermaid container to another school. And so they were looking for like authentic, real justice-driven social studies. And when we did that, right, and we hired a community artist to come in, they were like, let's go, we need to like, you know, winter break's almost coming, like we need to wrap this up. And I, I like, I get it, right? As a former <laughs> kindergarten teacher, I'm like, we have, we need to, yeah the marking quarter is ending, we need to make it move. But I think that what Kevin and Gordy were able to sort of exit the inquiry with was that someone listened to, to them, to their critical problem and recognized that what may seem minor and could be overlooked, right? Two young children sort of playing with, you know, GoPros and talking and looking at the world as one another could sort of be something that you just pass over and look, you know, look, mute in, in, your, in your classroom space. But developing an inquiry and following their solution, I, I think that they actually felt as if they were heard, right? And then sort of generating a collective response to their classroom, I think 
that others became just as invested in solving this moment of geocivic injustice as they did. And I, I, and I think that for me, as someone who also sort of exited the space, you know, at the, at the end of the holiday break, you know, I, I felt good about that. I felt really, really solid about that. I love that. And I, you know, I, again, I think that just the notion of, uh, of play and listening and learning it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like anything like that a teacher couldn't do, but once you enter the, the kind of high stakes world of, of kind of, uh, you know, very highly structured and organized classrooms, right. It's, it's actually can really be powerful to let students have space to use digital technologies and other things to really listen and learn to each other, to their community. I'm, I'm very, I feel, I see the implications for any level of, of learning. Yeah. So I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us today, John Wargo. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Where can our listeners listen to your work online? I guess uh, hopefully you have a podcast also, but we started with the oral theme. And so I was coming back to it. Where can they find your work online? Yeah, you could follow me at, at Wargo John on Twitter. All right. We'll, we'll check out all the tweets there. So again, thank you so much for joining us. We certainly hope to continue the discussion on Twitter, online, in other space, and just listening to our communities. Maybe people will be talking about more of John's work. Nice. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're there. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and you should, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And we always say this, that if you leave us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. And Michael, read a five-star review on the air. I demand it. Perfect. This is from Megan Dolsky. Fantastic. I am so glad that this podcast was shared with me. As I'm getting ready to begin student teaching, this podcast really helps me to dig deeper and reflect on what type of educator I want to be. It also helps me find ways to understand how difficult conversations can and should happen with elementary students. All the episodes I've listened to and the guests who have been brought onto the show and inspire me to become the best culturally responsive educator that I can possibly be. This podcast is such an amazing resource for all educators should utilize because there are so many amazing ideas to incorporate in the classroom to make learning more inclusive for all students. Thank you. That was, that was so nice. Yeah. And we're so, I'm so glad she has that takeaway from it. We certainly have hoped to do that. And we hope that, that as Zach Seitz didn't make her write that, but one thing he did do is he ed- edited this podcast and we appreciate him. He's at Wiley high school at the university of North Texas. Zach you can Seitz. find me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Gretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.